us online. Thanks for uh, tuning in. And uh, actually, are we live on Facebook yet, Jim? We are? Okay. Because I'm not sure. Sometimes I schedule it, and, and it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's weird sometimes how it works. Huh? All right. It had been hard started. So if you're joining us on Facebook, thank you. If you're joining us on YouTube, thanks again. And then, of course, our website, you can watch us there. So this evening, uh, we're going to be starting um, an extended study, something that uh, we're going to be doing on the off days of our Truth for Life study. So if you remember, uh, the kids take two weeks for each question. The first week, the, along with the kids, I teach through what they're learning. Uh, but then the second week, we've been spending some time looking at prayer, spending some more concerted time in prayer. And so I, I was thinking about that and thinking about how we can help to cultivate our own prayer lives. And um, I thought of how throughout scriptures, and I think you've probably heard this as well, that it's helpful to pray the prayers that we find in scripture. Um, of course, it, when you think about a scriptural prayer that is given to us as an example of prayer, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? All right, the, the, the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, our Father that art in heaven. Um, and we, we can, you know, uh, understand why that's given because Christ actually gives it as a pattern of prayer. He tells us when you pray, pray like this. Uh, his disciples in the Gospel of Luke, they come to him and ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Um, but it's not that he's giving us those words and saying we have to specifically word for word verbatim repeat those things, but rather he's providing a pattern for us of how we should come in prayer. And so that pattern, I think, is something that's helpful for us to consider, um, not just what Jesus provides for us, but the example that we find in the Apostle Paul. So what we're going to be looking at today is from Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 13. And we'll be here for um, several, several months, I would imagine, as we walk through looking at um, the prayer that the Apostle Paul gives uh, here as an example for us. So what we're seeing here, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. He's writing to a group of people that he likely had never met. Um, we have no record in Scripture that Paul ever visited the town of Colossae. Um, and in fact, based in this passage, if you look at verse 7 of this passage, he talks about how that the, the believers in Colossae learned the gospel through, not Paul, but through Epaphras. Uh, we also could see in chapter 2 um, and verse uh, 1 how he speaks about the fact that he had not gone there. Um, he wanted to go there, but he wasn't able to go to have them see him face to face. So um, the knowledge that Paul had of these believers in Colossae was secondhand. It was through what had been given to him from Epaphras, from uh, what other individuals had said as they had ministered there at the church in Colossae. And so we have Paul praying for people that he had never personally discipled, he had never personally shared the gospel with. And, and I, I think about that, and we can really sort of expand that out, even though they were alive and contemporaries at the time of Paul, that really makes them not much different than we are. So Paul, in essence here, is praying for believers who never met. I'm pretty sure none of you have met the Apostle Paul. And if you say you have, we need to have a talk after the, after the service because you're crazy. So in, in one sense, what Paul gives us here is a, um, is a way that perhaps he, was, he would be praying for all believers, which I think provides for us a pattern for how we should pray ourselves. 
I think what Paul gives us here, and there's a number of different things we're going to look at um, as we look at this prayer that he gives, but how should we be praying for our own growth in the Lord? What should be the things that we come before the Lord with and, and bring our requests before the Lord about? What, what should be the focus? What should we be asking God to do within us? And Paul, here in Colossians chapter 1, at the beginning of the passage, gives us a pattern, I think, for how we can pray for our own Christian lives. I think it's, it's obviously true that Paul was doing this and praying for real individuals, but there's also the reality that this is inspired in Scripture. And so the Holy Spirit is taking these words and bringing them to our thoughts, bringing them to our minds to remind us of how we should pray. So let's look at Colossians chapter 1. We'll read verses 3 through verse 14. And then we're going to be mainly spending the most uh, majority of our time today in verses 3 and 4. So he writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there's a lot there. Paul goes through a lot. But I think it's, it's profitable for us to mine the depths of what Paul is praying for. And it's interesting to see how Paul begins this. In fact, he bookends this entire prayer with one thing. Anyone want to, want to take a stab at what, that, what the beginning and end of this prayer focuses on? We see it at the very beginning of verse 3. And then we see it again in verse 12. What, what they, both verses begin with that first thing that he focuses on. What is it? Giving thanks. Prayer that we give, prayer that Paul is giving, but the prayer that we give needs to first and foremost be grounded in thanksgiving. Now we're coming up on uh, November, and of course November we often think about that's the time where we have thanksgiving, the, the time where we set aside a day to give thanks. Um, I think it's appropriate and helpful for us to do that, but the reality is what Paul is praying here should be how often should we be praying and giving thanks? Always. So Thanksgiving is not just to be a, a time that we do just once a year, but rather it's to be a constant 
uh, principle, a discipline that we have in our lives. And so if we're to understand what we're supposed to be praying for, for our own Christian growth, our own Christian walk, it should begin with thanksgiving. Prayer is grounded in thanksgiving. Now, Paul goes through here and mentions a number of different things that he gives thanks for. And today, we're, we're going to look at just one of them. Uh, we might get through some more uh, in more than just one time the next couple times we meet. But I think it's important to spend some time looking at this first thing that Paul gives thanks for the Colossian believers. And it's something that I think we often fail to give thanks for. And that is, we should give thanksgiving for our faith. We should give thanks for our faith. Look again in verse 3. Notice what he says. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. All right, so Paul focuses, I begin my prayers giving thanks. In fact, whenever I pray for you, I begin by giving thanks. So for us, whenever we pray, would it not be good to follow the Apostle Paul's example and give thanks for the same things he gives thanks for? Yes, so what is that? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul begins by thanking God in prayer for the Colossian believers' faith in Christ. We, he is giving thanks that they are believing now, it's important to note here that he doesn't just say, um, I thank God that we've heard of your faith and stop there, right? So often, many people in the world today, they, they want to consider themselves people of faith, but that faith remains undefined, that faith has no content. We, we say, well, we just believe in something. The Bible doesn't call us to believe in something. The Bible calls us to believe in someone, in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul defines here. I give thanks to God because I heard that you are believing in Jesus Christ. It's not a nebulous, undefined faith. It's faith in Christ. It has substance. It's focused upon him. In fact, throughout what we're going to look at throughout this entire prayer is it is always pointing us back to Jesus Christ. He forms the basis and the content of what were to look to as we pray. Now, if we're giving thanks for faith, I think it's important that we understand what faith is. And just as the object of our faith is defined by Paul here as Jesus Christ, I think sometimes we can, we can sort of have a nebulous, sort of wishy-washy idea of what faith itself really is. What does it mean to truly have faith? What is faith? And there's been a number of different things that have been offered as, as explanations, illustrations, sitting down in a chair, you're trusting in that chair. And, and at some level, I think all of these examples fall short. I think God's word actually provides for us a better understanding of what faith is. And, and I'm looking here particularly at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3. He's, again, starting a, a, a passage of Scripture, starting a letter to the church at, at Thessalonica, talking about how he's remembering, praying for them. So, again, we see a pattern of prayer that Paul is doing. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love. And then here we see sort of a description of what faith is. Steadfastness, 
of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is faith? It's steadfast hope in Jesus Christ. Um, and I think it's important to note these, uh, these main things here. So first of all, it's steadfastness. All right, it continues. The, the word here for steadfastness is, um, it's the word meno, which means remain in Greek, and then the word uh, hyper attached to that. So when you think of something that is hyper remaining, that's sort of the idea. Hypermeno is the term that's used there. And, and what we're recognizing in that is it's emphasizing the consistency, the unflinchingness of what true faith is. True faith is steadfast. A true believer does not, quote unquote, lose the faith. True, genuine, saving faith is a faith that continues. Now, this doesn't mean that we may not struggle, that there won't be times where we backslide. I, I even think about this, obviously, in the way that it's worked in the disciples. All right? Peter makes this wonderful, confident statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he's the one who has the words of living, of, of life. All right? Peter's making these great faith-based statements, confidence in Christ. But then, when Christ is arrested... And Peter's question about his relationship to Christ, what does he do? He denies them. Now, it wasn't that Peter lost the faith because we see that even in the midst of that trial, he came through it and finally he continued in faith. And that, that's the real point. In this life, there's going to be ups and downs. We're going to struggle with sin. There's no doubt about that. We, won't str- we will stop struggling with sin when we see the Lord face to face. So... By saying that true faith is steadfast, I'm not saying that we don't struggle with it. But true faith will not ultimately turn back completely on who our confidence is found in. John talks about this in 1 John 2, 19. Speaking of individuals in the church, they went out from us. Why? Well, they weren't of us. Because if they had been of us, what would they have done? They would have continued. They would have been steadfast in that faith. But they went out that it might become plain to all that they are not of us. Jesus predicted this. He says that there are going to be those who are going to deliver you to tribulation, put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will what? fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But notice who it is who, who is saved. The one who what? Endures to the end will save. The one who saved. The one who continues and persists in faith. And so again, that is what Paul is talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 1.13 or 1.3. We are having a steadfastness in our hope. Our faith is not here today and gone tomorrow. It persists. And then we see, secondly, it's steadfastness of hope. Faith produces hope. It's the very thing we cling to based on the promises of God. We talked about how Faith has substance, and that substance is found in Jesus Christ. Well, Christ 
himself is the fulfillment. He is the full embodiment. He is the great hope of full and complete salvation. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but rather in him it is always what? Yes, it's always yes. Now what Paul is talking about here is he's saying when we turn to Christ, it's not that maybe God will fulfill his promises in Christ. The answer is Christ, God will always fulfill his promises in Jesus Christ. And then notice what he says. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You know, how do we know that God will keep his promises? And the answer is because our faith is in Christ Jesus. How has Christ demonstrated that God keeps his promises? Well, we could look at a number of different factors. We could, we could look at the fact that Christ fulfilled a number of Old Testament prophecies and there's a plethora of those that we could see. We, we could see that, that all of God's promises were fulfilled in Christ because Christ worked great miracles. He fed thousands with hardly anything. He, he gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead. We could look at the promises of God being fulfilled in the way that Christ fulfilled the law and how he preached the truth, the doctrine, and the, and the gospel of the kingdom. But all of that while helpful and, and supporting this idea that all the promises of God find their yes in, yes in Christ, ultimately, what is our greatest problem? Our greatest problem is what? Sin. And what is the, what is the consequence of sin? The wages of sin is death. And what has Christ done to demonstrate that God has provided hope from sin and death? Raised from the dead. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So when we say that we are trusting or believing in Jesus Christ, we're trusting and believing in the fullness of the promises of God being fulfilled in Him. That's why we have hope. That's why it's so pivotal that the tomb be empty. If the tomb had still the body of Christ, Paul says we would be of all men most miserable. There would be no hope. But because the tomb is empty, because Christ has risen from the dead, we can have a hope that all the promises of God, not just the promises of salvation from death, but the promises from, of all things, everything that God gives us in his word will come to place. And then there's one final thing that Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. We have steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ, but before that he adds one other descriptor. He is what? Our Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of how the Thessalonian believers have hope in their Lord. Notice how he says it's our Lord. It's a possessive idea. This means that we serve Christ as Lord. He is the one who we submit to in all things. 
You know, it's, it's interesting here, the connection and really the description that Paul is giving of faith and the fact that he points to the lordship of Christ in this. There are people who want to divorce those two things and want to say that faith is one thing and then submission to Christ as Lord is another thing. But the Bible doesn't conceive of anyone with true faith who does not trust in Christ as their Lord. The Bible knows no Christian who has that type of idea. To believe in a Christ who is not your Lord is to believe in a Christ who does not exist. And that is the reality that Paul is driving home here. Now again, does this mean that we're going to always consistently revere him as Lord? No, we still struggle with sin. But we don't reject his lordship. We don't spurn it completely. We will not deny him as Lord in either the pattern of our lives or in the proclamation of our mouths. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, what will the Son do? He will deny them before the Father who is in heaven. So faith. It's steadfast hope in submission to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's faith in a nutshell. Now, there are other aspects of that, other things that we could point to in Scripture, but I think that forms a basis for us. Now, notice again back in our text, Paul is giving thanks to God. Notice who this thanks is not focused on. He's not thanking the Colossian believers that they believe. He's thanking God that they believe. Now, why should we give thanks to God for something that we do? And this is a question that I want us to sort of walk through a little bit and, and, and consider. I mean, after all, aren't we the ones who exercise faith? Isn't the call of the gospel to, for us to believe? Isn't it our responsibility to believe? And it is. Absolutely it is. Why should I give thanks to God for something that I am doing? And I think oftentimes, if we don't have our mindset right about faith, we're never going to get to the point where we give thanks to God for our faith. See, we have to realize that we must give thanks to God for our faith because apart from Him, we would never believe in him. Apart from the gracious work of God in our lives, we would never believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, we see this borne out in some of the passages we've already looked at. So we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. All right, And just to quickly review what he said there in 2 Corinthians 1, 19 through 20, he says... For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. So he's talking about an act of faith that he is doing. But notice what he says about why he's doing that act of faith. And it is who that establishes us? God. 
who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. All the realities of faith in Christ, our hope in Him, all the promises of God that find their yes and amen in Him, we don't, by our own abilities and our own actions and our own inquisitiveness, come to somehow figure it out on our own. Why? Because it's God who's the one who establishes us. I I love the term that he uses there, establishes, because true faith is steadfast faith. So where is my hope for continuing in the faith? Is it in me? No, it's God who's the one who establishes us in the faith. It's God who's the one who brings this to pass in our lives. John talks about that there are those who have gone out from among us because they were not of us. They showed that they were not truly in the faith because they abandoned the faith. But then in talking to his His readers, he says this, but you have been anointed by your faith. Is that what he says? You've been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. He he focuses on the fact that that faith that they find is theirs because God has anointed them for it. It It's a faith that he has worked within them. And then the passage we looked at that described faith. He says, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with what type of conviction? Full conviction. Not just partially trusting, not just sort of trusting, not just getting a ticket to heaven and then living my life however I want to, it affected the totality of who they were. Full conviction came. And so faith is something that comes about through the gracious work of God within us. Paul speaks of how the Thessalonians came to that faith because they were chosen to believe, and then because they were chosen to believe, what did they do? They believed. God worked that faith within them. We see this again in Acts chapter 13. The gospel is preached to the Gentiles. The Gentiles hear the gospel. And their response is rejoicing, glorifying the word of God. And then there's a response. They believed. But who believed? as many as were appointed to eternal life. There is important to note how this is stated here. He doesn't say that those who believed were appointed to eternal life. He said those who were appointed to eternal life believed. It's a focus on the grace of God that brought about their faith. Of course, the greatest passage for this is Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved. How are we saved? We're saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is what? A gift. The gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are Whose workmanship? 
Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul here is making an amazing statement of how salvation is wrought within us by God. He speaks about how this comes about through grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It is a gift that we don't deserve. It's something that's given to us, but we have in no way, shape, or form earned it. And in fact, he emphasized this. We're not given this gift as a result of our what? Works. So this salvation that comes about by grace through faith, he says, this is not your own doing. Now, if you read commentaries about this, if you sit in seminary classes, if you, if you hear discussions about this, there's a lot of debate about what the this refers back to. Does the this refer back to grace? Does the this, this refer back to salvation? Does the this refer back to faith? And I would posit that I think it refers back to all of them. That God's grace is not merited. Otherwise, it would not be grace. That the salvation that we have and stand in and are established in, was it a result of our own works? No. And that, yes, even the faith that we exercise in Jesus Christ, that itself is also a gift from God. It's not a work that we produce within ourselves. It's not something so that we could say, well, I was clever enough. I figured it out. I was the one who decided to put my faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, you did decide to put faith in Jesus Christ, but you did it because God gave you the gift of faith to do it. Now, let's say today as you leave here, I were to stand at the back door and I were to hand each of you a $100 bill. Don't get any hopes up. It's not going to happen. But let's say that I did that. I would be giving you a gift. What should be your response when I hand you that crisp $100 Monopoly money? What should you say? Huh? Can you get another one? <laughs> what should you say? Thank you. Thank you. This is what Paul is pointing out in Colossians chapter 1. He gives thanks that the Colossian believers have faith. Because he realizes that their faith is a result of God's gracious work within them. He's right to do so. So here's the challenge for us. If, if Paul provides a pattern for prayer for us, what should we be doing in our prayers? Should we not be giving thanks to God for our faith? Let me ask you, when was the last time you gave thanks to God for your faith? In prayer. When was the last time you, you spent time giving thanks to him for the fact that you are coming to him in prayer by faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, everything in the Christian life depends on a steadfast hope found in, the Lord and Savior, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything is built on that steadfast hope in Him. Why do you have that steadfast hope? Because God has given it to you as a gift. I think 
we have become so accustomed to this faith that's given to us by a gift from God that we treat it much like we treat other things that we commonly have that are gifts given to us. We don't become grateful for them. We begin to take it for granted. I think many Christians take our faith for granted. Listen, apart from the grace of God, you would not be believing in Jesus Christ. So we need to align our prayer lives to be what Paul shows us here. That we ground our prayers by first giving thanks for the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul again says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because, why do I see give thanks? Because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. I'm going to take some moments now and I'm going to pray. I want you to pray with me and give thanks to God for the faith that we have in his Son. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come before you humbly. We come before you with a continual, established, steadfast hope that is settled in the one in whom all your promises find their yes and amen. We come by faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, we give thanks to you that we have this faith. That we have, by your grace, come before you in faith. Lord, we confess that we are easily, easily pulled towards taking the faith that we have for granted. Father, that we often do not show gratitude and, and love for you as we ought. But Father, that we, in fact, we are so accustomed to this faith and it becomes, unfortunately in our lives, such old hat that we abandon it, falling into sin and rebellion. But Father, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful and just, that if we confess our sins, you will forgive us. And so, Father, we give thanks to you today for the faith that we have by your grace in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you that you opened our eyes to our desperate condition in sin, that you worked in our heart faith that cried out to you, Abandoning hope in anything else and placing our hope in Christ alone. Thank you, Father. Lord, as we remember this faith, may we constantly give thanks to you. As the Apostle Paul gave thanks for the believers' faith in Colossae, Lord, may we give thanks to you for our own personal faith that is steadfast that is abounding in Christ.
that is ours by your grace, your gift, not our works. Thank you for our faith, Father. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.